buttons. There you go. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Be in Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 7 through 10 this morning. And the title of our message today is Humanity is Sinful. And that may not be the, the uh, first thing you think of when we uh, read these chapters uh, or these verses. However, that is, the, that is the implication. Revelation 20 and verse 7 says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations where, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation chapter 20 is probably in my estimation, one of the most important uh, chapters of the Bible, if you want to know what a person thinks about God's Word. And there are so many uh, things that are going on in this portion of Scripture that are so very important for really all of humanity and our understanding of what is going on in this world today, that it, it behooves us to understand what God is trying to communicate to us. Because after all, uh, we have to understand that God created communication and therefore he's probably pretty good at it. So he is absolutely trying to communicate something to us in his word, it behooves us to understand what he is saying. And the implication of this chapter in particular, chapter 19, and really the entirety of the book of Revelation is that God has a plan for the world and he's going to accomplish it. And this should give us great hope. And so all of these schemes of interpreting the Bible that don't take these things literally, are in the end removing that hope from us. And that is a very dangerous road to travel down. As we have seen in the past weeks, part of God's plan is a literal kingdom upon this earth where Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign physically, literally, from David's throne in Jerusalem over a kingdom that fills the entire world. It will be a kingdom of righteousness. It will be a place at a time when sin is dealt with very quickly. Uh, Jesus Christ will rule with a rod of iron is what, is what the word says. He will be a shepherd to believers. He will guide us into righteousness. We will rule and reign with him. Uh, and a part of that is a part of our uh, ability to rule and reign is, is judged upon how faithful we are in this life. 
And so, so if we remove a literal kingdom, we remove a motivation for living for the Lord today. If we remove a literal kingdom, you know, what hope do we have in this world? If we don't have the hope that one day Christ is going to come again and set things right in this world, I don't know about you, but I would tend to get pretty uh, downtrodden. I would be filled with despair about the things that are going on in this world instead of having a hope and an understanding that this is exactly the way God wants things to go. He has me living in this period of time to be a, be a, his representative in these times in which we are living. That should fill us with hope and, and motivation for carrying on in this world. But as we see in our passage today, in spite of living in a time where people will literally be able to see the risen Christ, he will be there ruling and reigning over a kingdom. Uh, There will be people like you and me who will be in immortal bodies living among people who are like we are today, mortal human beings. We will be there living forever in perfect glorified bodies. In spite of those things, humanity on a massive, unprecedented scale is still going to rebel against God. And oh, by the way, during this time, like we saw last week, Satan is locked in an abyss, unable to influence your thinking, unable to uh, be the one who is behind uh, the immorality that we see in the world. No, there's no, no excuses like that. And yet humanity is still going to rebel, showing us the sinful nature of human beings and our desperate, desperate situation that we are, that we are in. Uh, as a reminder, we are studying the things in the, in the book of Revelation important to, to understand this book, uh, the way it is presented uh, in a literal, plain sense. When we do that, it, it just lays out very clearly uh, what God is going to do in the future. It gives us insight into, as we saw this morning, some of the technological things that are taking place in this world. We just very clearly, very plainly see the stage being set for the things that we read about in the book of Revelation. Primarily concerned with future things, of course. Uh, John was to write the things which will take place after these things, Revelation 1.19. And that in large part is the tribulation period that's covered in Revelation 6 through 19. This period of time, a literal seven years that is coming in the future where the Antichrist will rule and reign over his kingdom. And then Christ is going to come again and establish a literal kingdom upon the earth that is going to last for a thousand years. We saw that in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6, where it is repeated over and over this concept of 1,000 years. 
Revelation 20 and verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's, we, this isn't new information. Uh, we read about it in the book of Isaiah this morning. Uh, the Messiah coming and defeating Satan, that was prophesied over 700 years before Christ even came to the earth in the book of Isaiah. Here it is again, written uh, in a, around AD 95 or so. Uh, about 800 years later, John writes the very same thing. But he's going to be bound for 1,000 years, it says at the end of verse 2. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, implying that there's no getting out of this. It states it uh, two times there. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. There we saw that last time, or emphasized that last time anyway. Uh, 1,000 years does not mean an indefinite long period of time. John knows very well how to describe an indefinite period of time. He does it there at the end of verse 3. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their right hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Over and over and over, we see this concept of a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. God is trying to tell us something here. I'm pretty sure that there is coming a literal 1,000-year period of time when people will be resurrected and live, rule, and reign with Christ during this thousand-year period of time in which Satan is going to be locked in an abyss and unable to influence humanity in any way, shape, or form. He will be completely cut off from us, from this world. And make no mistake, there's no nothing from the plain sense of the writing here that would indicate it to us that this is all taking place in, a, in an area different from the world in which we are living on uh, right now. This is literally on the earth. It's going to last for 1,000 years. Last time we spent some time looking at these resurrections. Obviously, this, uh, this is said to be the first resurrection here. This passage addresses... Uh, three groups of people who are being resurrected here. We saw in verse four, it says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. That's the first group. And we went back, uh, learned what a pronoun is, how it refers to a, a noun that has come earlier in either in the sentence or in the discussion. 
we went back through all the nouns that it could be applying to, and the only one that makes any sense whatsoever is found in verse 14 of Revelation 19. And it says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So the, the they there in the first sentence of verse 4 is referring back to Revelation 19.14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, that, that is describing believers in Christ, those who have trusted in Christ uh, in this, what you can barely see, way over here on the left side of the screen, church age believers. Those are the ones who are included in this armies of heaven clothed in fine linen. That's you and that's me. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are clothed in fine linen. He has transferred his righteousness to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 uh, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. It is an, an immediate transfer the moment that you understand that Jesus Christ died for your sins, paid the penalty for the sins of the entire world. You understand that, who he is as the second person of the Trinity, and you put your faith in that, your trust in him and what he did for you, God transfers his righteousness to you. That's representative of these, uh, this fine linen, white and clean, that we are clothed in at this point in future history. It is also the... The fine linen is also a representation of our good works that we have done for the Lord under proper uh, motivation. The, the judgment of that will take place at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, we are all going to give an account for uh, how we have lived our lives for the Lord uh, post faith, if you will. After we have trusted in him, now we are uh, responsible to him. And we, our lives are now uh, to be dedicated to serving him and living for him. And so we will be judged based on how we've done that and rewarded based on how we have done that. It's not a time of punishment. It's not a time of oh, well, you could have done this a lot better. If only you wouldn't have been involved in this sin at this point in time, then you would have been able to be better at whatever this gift is. Uh, I, there will be some recognition that you could have done better for you personally, but Christ isn't going to point those things out to you at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, it will be a time of reward but there's also a loss of reward, but your sin has already been taken care of. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As a believer in Christ, you don't have to uh, fret that, oh, Christ is going to punish me at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm really going to pay for that one later. 
uh, and that somehow you might lose your salvation or something along those lines. That's completely foreign to this judgment seat of Christ. It is a time of reward, and it is a time that you will be rewarded, and then you will have the opportunity to uh, rule and reign with Christ in a more complete way, if you will, uh, based on the the reward that you receive at the judgment seat of Christ, preparing you for Revelation 9.14 when you will come again with him. And Revelation 20 and verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. That is describing uh, these people. And it's also describing people during the seven-year tribulation period who have trusted in Christ. Salvation is always, has always been. That's one of the problems that dispensationalism, quote-unquote, has, that some uh, dispensationalists will teach two ways of salvation. Oh, the Israelites had to keep the law in order to be saved, but now uh, we live by grace and salvation is by faith. Salvation has always, always from Adam until uh, Revelation 20 and verse 15, salvation has always been by faith in God and his provision for our sins. He does all the work. We trust in what he has done. Fundamental misunderstanding of the law to think that the Jews had to keep the law in order to be saved. Not, not true. So people in the tribulation, they'll be saved the same way by believing in Christ and his sacrifice for their sins and when they do that, they will start living for him and they uh, are going to pay the price with their lives. John says that he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God. They did not worship the beast or his image. They did not receive the mark on the forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So these tribulation saints, people who believe in Christ during this literal seven-year period that's still in the future, they will come to life at the end of the tribulation, I believe shortly after, uh, perhaps at the same time that Christ comes again to the earth. The timing there is not precisely laid down for us. I think it's going to be pretty pretty quick, if not at the same time when he comes again. We, as church-age believers, will be resurrected before this tribulation period even begins. I neglected to mention that. Uh, rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, can happen at any moment, signless event. Uh, the tribulation is a period of signs leading up to his second coming to the earth. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, 1 through 3, very importantly says that when Jesus' own words, he introduced this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, I think we can be that blunt about it. John 14, let me read the verses so I don't uh, mess it up for us. 
got a new Bible and it doesn't fall open to the pages that I go to a lot. So bear with me. John 14 and verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There's your salvation. Believe. Single condition. Not believe plus follow the law. Not believe plus go to church. Not believe plus anything. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Very easy conclusion. Jesus Christ, when he leaves the earth, he's going to prepare a place for us. Where is Jesus today? In heaven. The apostles saw him go. Leave the earth, return to heaven. He is going there to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. By definition, he is taking people from this earth to heaven, the place where he is preparing a place for us. By definition, that has to happen before this uh, before he comes again to the earth. And I believe in a number of other places, Revelation 3.10 speaks of him delivering us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians, full of references to Christ delivering us before the wrath comes. And First uh, Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 say there will be a resurrection at that point in time. We receive a new body when he comes again in the air, catches us up, takes us back to the Father's house, it will be in a resurrected body. That's uh, actually the second part of the first resurrection we saw. Christ is the first stage of the first resurrection. The second stage of the first resurrection is uh, church-age believers being caught up before and resurrected before the tribulation begins. Third phase of the first resurrection is the tribulation believers rising from the dead at the end of the kingdom period. Verse 5 references another phase, a fourth phase of the first resurrection in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So that tells me that there is, during this thousand years, people are going to be born, people are going to live. That's very plainly described in the Old Testament. Many places, the book of Isaiah speaks of life during this kingdom period. If somebody lives for a hundred years, it is the same as a person dying as an infant today. Uh, in other words, people are going to live for a very long time during this kingdom period. And some of them are going to believe in God, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And they will be resurrected at the end of the thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now, some good scholars a lot of good scholars will say, well, that's a reference to the evil dead who are going to be resurrected at the end of the thousand years. 
But I don't agree with that because it says that they are coming to life. That phrase is not used to refer to the unbelieving dead when they are resurrected. They're not said to have life uh, in other places. This one specifically does. And furthermore, the last sentence of verse 5 says, this is the first resurrection. So first resurrection, Jesus Christ is included in that. Church age believers are included in that. Tribulation saints are included in that uh, first resurrection. I believe the righteous from the kingdom are included in that first resurrection, as are, who aren't specifically mentioned here, Old Testament believers in other places of the Bible are said to come to life. We read about Isaiah 26 mentions uh, the earth giving up its dead believers coming to life again. Daniel chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 explicitly says that Israelites uh, will come to life at the end of a time of unprecedented distress on the earth. The tribulation. Daniel 12, 1 through 2 says Israelites will come to life at the end of the tribulation. Righteous and unrighteous alike, Israelites will come to life at the end of the tribulation period. The righteous will go into the kingdom. The unrighteous will not. They're going to uh, another place, a temporary holding place before we get to this lake of fire. Sometimes uh, we call that place hell. Sometimes it's referred to as Hades. Uh, It is a temporary holding place before the lake of fire and uh, unrighteous Israelites will go there according to Daniel chapter 12. So I understand there's a lot going on there with the various resurrections. Perhaps we need a chart. Probably should have made one for this week. Uh, But the first resurrection is essentially a resurrection of all the righteous people of all time. There's an easy way to think of it. So who's, who's the righteous of all time? Well, Old Testament, those who believe in God, uh, church age, those who have put their faith in Christ and his shed blood on the cross, tribulation saints who believed in Jesus, uh, kingdom, people who believe during the kingdom, of course, they'll be resurrected. All of those people will be resurrected, given immortal bodies and live forever with God. In the eternal state, Revelation 21 and 22, we haven't gotten there yet. All of those who have rejected God throughout all of human history will also uh, be resurrected in a sense, but they're being resurrected so that they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. And we will get to why that is uh, here today, hopefully. Uh, But this all... Uh, revolves around a literal 1,000-year kingdom period on this earth. God created the earth to be very good. He created it so that a, he, his desire is for a person to reign over this earth. That was the original mandate given to Adam and Eve. They failed because of sin, so they lost the right to rule and reign over this earth. Satan usurped that place 
and has been the one ruling and reigning over this earth since then. He usurped the authority given to Adam and Eve. All of humanity is disqualified from ruling and reigning, like we learn about in Romans chapter 5, because we are all sinful. Therefore, one man had to come, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one prophesied about in the Old Testament, in order for God's plan for the world, for life to be very good, being ruled, and it, creation being ruled over by a human, that's God's plan. It, at some point in history, it has to be confirmed and take place, or God is a liar. That's the importance of a literal thousand year or a literal kingdom upon this earth. The thousand years comes from our passage here, Revelation 20. Nowhere else do we find that thousand years. Thank God for the book of Revelation. We get a more clear picture, but Jesus Christ will literally rule and reign over a kingdom on this earth for a thousand years, showing that God is not a liar. That's why this literal kingdom is so very, very, very important for us. And, there, and these uh, errant millennial views are a fundamental misunderstanding in his, uh, of God and his purpose for the world. Post-millennialism, that the idea that humanity is going to create a kingdom on this earth and then Jesus is going to come again, we, sinful people who couldn't rule it for five minutes back in Genesis 3, are going to be able to now suddenly create a kingdom that's good enough for Christ to come and rule again. That's the idea of post-millennialism. Uh, very errant, to say the least. Our millennialism may be even worse, that there is no literal kingdom. It's just spiritual. It's just in our deeply darkened, distraught hearts, <laughs> apparently. That's the idea of amillennialism, this wonderful God's kingdom. It's in our hearts. Our, in, our hearts are sinful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is probably even a worse idea that there is no literal kingdom. There is a kingdom. It will be established by Christ. He has done all the work. He will do all the work to establish this. It's a righteous kingdom that he paid the penalty for, and he is the only one who is able to rule over it. It is extremely important uh, for our understanding of the world and God and what he's doing in this world, a literal kingdom with Christ ruling and reigning over it with people who have been resurrected living in it. And I already talked about all those things, so we won't rehash it again. Uh, so today we get to humanity is sinful. <laughs> Satan will be at the end of this thousand year period. Satan will be released. The, the saints will be surrounded but there is a suitable conclusion to all of this. And this, this is the unique nature of biblical Christianity. We are, the not we as if we've invented it. God is the one who invented it. According to the scriptures, God will deal with sin. And this is the only 
for lack of a better term that I hate to use, the only religion that recognizes that God is going to deal with the problem of sin. It, it's in the Bible. Biblicists are the only ones who have an answer to the world's problems and the problem of sin in particular. It will be dealt with. And it will be dealt with in Revelation 7 or 20 and verse 10 that I already read, so I won't take the time to do it again. But Satan is going to be released. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Again, the thousand years are completed. Every time I see or, or emphasize the, the definite article there, the, the, it reminds me of Ohio State because for some reason it's the Ohio State University. I don't know why, but it is. Uh, and, but that's, that's true here. And it, it's good to emphasize that because when they say that, they're saying it's the Ohio State University. There is one like it and this is it. It is the Ohio State University. And that's what God is doing for us here because that definite article is there uh, when we see this phrase, the thousand years, it is there every time. The definite article. If it was an unsubstantiated, indefinite period of time, it would probably say something along the lines of a thousand years. Uh, or there, there wouldn't be a definite article there. That's the way Greek handles it. They don't really have a word for a like we do. It's just a noun without the definite article. So when the, when the author wants to refer to something specific, he puts in the definite article, the word the. That's the definite article. And it's there every time that it's used. Verse 3, until the or the thousand years were completed. Uh, well, it does say in verse four that they, they ruled and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. They rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, indicating back to the V thousand years that Christ is coming to establish. It is a specific set of years, a specific set of time, a definite set of time. How long is it going to last? 1,000 years. Why not just go with what the plain text tells us? 1,000 years, a definite period of time in the future that is will come to be established after Christ comes again. So Christ comes pre-millennium or pre-thousand years. That's why we are, the Bible very clearly lays out a pre-millennial kingdom, a pre-millennial return of Christ to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And notice that word there when the thousand years, the thousand years are completed. In other words, they begin at a point in time and they're going to be completed at a point in time. You cannot more clearly define a set period of time 
other than saying at the beginning, people are going to be resurrected and rule and reign with Christ. At the end, something else is going to happen. That defines a set period of time. Our church service begins with a time of prayer. It ends with a time of prayer. And there's a span of time in between us. That's Sometimes it's an indefinite period of time. We don't know exactly how long it is, but here it's defined for us. It begins, there's a thousand years, and the thousand years will be completed. God could not be any more clear in describing a definite period of time here. And that word for completed is teleo. And every time uh, that phrase comes up, it makes me think of John 19 and verse 30. The whole reason why we can have a righteous kingdom upon this earth, the whole reason why we can have righteousness is because something was completed. Teleo. John 19, 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, speaking of him on the cross, of course, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. To telestai is the Greek term there that is being used, translated as finished here. It was a term used by the Greeks, that they, uh, a financial term that they would literally stamp on uh, uh, debt, uh, statements of debt for people when, they're, when they had paid off the last of the debt. The accountant would stamp on it to telestai. It is finished. It, this is complete. It's all been paid for. You don't owe anything else. And that's what Christ said when he gave up his spirit on the cross, when he gave up his life on the cross. It is finished. Everything that Christ wanted to accomplish for the salvation of our souls was completed on that day on the cross 2,000 years ago, so much so that he said it is finished, to telestai, in the perfect tense, in fact. Past perfect tense, a past action with ongoing consequences. The ongoing consequence is that you and I can trust in what his completed work now in order to receive salvation. And that completed work is what makes this thousand-year kingdom on the earth even possible to begin with. And so at the conclusion of this thousand-year kingdom, Satan is going to be released from his uh, prison. The implication being that his, his influence is going to be eliminated during the kingdom period. Uh, unlike today. He is very, very active today. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. And that, you know, the, these people don't dwell what he's talking about. Aren't, he's not talking about Washington, D.C. or Lansing. He tells us that against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places, Satan and his demons are very active today. Uh, 
very active in spiritual warfare. That's why Paul goes on to describe the full armor of God that we need to withstand these attacks from Satan and his minions. He is not in the abyss today. Probably the number one evidence that we're not living in the kingdom today, short of Jesus not being in Jerusalem. There's a lot of signs that we're not in the kingdom today. Satan is the one ruling over this world. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That is not a description of the kingdom. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6 is a description of the kingdom and Satan being in an abyss, bound, sealed for a thousand years. It's not happening today. So we need to ensure that we understand that we are not living in the kingdom today. We are not trying to establish the kingdom on the earth today. Jesus Christ will establish the kingdom when he comes again. Our role in the church is to be a light for him, to witness for him, to uh, give people the truth of salvation through faith in Christ alone and to be encouraged and walk with the Lord. That is our role in the church today. But notice that Satan is going to be released for a purpose. He's going to be released to deceive humanity. Verse 8, and he will come out to deceive the nations. Uh, Humanity implication humanity can be deceived even in the kingdom period even with literal jesus ruling and reigning from david's throne even with all of the uh incredible abundance that's spoken of that psalm 72 we read this morning and throughout isaiah speaks of the incredible agricultural abundance that will uh abound during this time. Jesus literally being in the kingdom. All the things that had happened during the tribulation period that we learned about and God rescues humanity uh, out of that time frame. All of those memories that people will have and they will live throughout this a thousand years and then they're going to, in the end, be deceived, living in probably the, the most expansive number of people and the, the most perfect uh, environment for people to live in, they're still open to deception. So do you think we're open to deception today in this world in which we are living? That's why we need to learn the truth. The truth has to be something that is a part of who we are in our normal goings-on in the world. Otherwise, you and I will be deceived a whole lot more easily than people in the kingdom are even going to be deceived. We are open to deception very much easier than even they will be. That's why Paul emphasizes and Christ emphasizes in his earthly ministry teaching. That was Jesus's number one focus. We saw when we studied the gospel of Luke, It was Jesus's teaching. He was teaching as he went through the villages. He taught people. Yes, he healed them. Yes, he fed them. 
Yes, he took care of their physical needs. That was all to demonstrate what he was saying in his teaching. That was his primary role. That's the primary role of the, te- of the church. Ephesians 4.11, Paul says, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness in Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Is there any passage or verse of scripture that describes the present day church more accurately than children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men? To me, it does. That very much describes uh, at least the modern day American church in large measure, which is... uh, a sign or a an indication of the problem that we are engaged in. We have this problem because we have abandoned the role of the pastor teacher in the church and the importance of the teaching and learning and application of God's word to our lives. We're much more interested in uh, worship time and and prayer and. Uh, in some kind of uh, spiritual experience and these kinds of things. Not that prayer is bad. Of course, prayer is good. But uh, this uh, kind of spiritualism, if you will, rather than the uh, academic learning of God's word, applying it to our heart and mind and allowing the Holy Spirit to change us through understanding his word and then going out and living for him, serving others for him, loving God and loving others. The only way that's going to happen is as Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, not sanctify them in the truth. Your music is the truth or your uh, spiritualism is the truth. No, it's the word of God is the truth. And that is how we are sanctified. That is how we keep ourselves from being deceived and tossed around with every wind of doctrine, everything that comes down the pike. uh, We're not deceived by it because we're steadfast in his word. Even people in the kingdom are uh, going to be subjected to deception if they do not remain steadfast in the truth. And the saints are actually going to be surrounded. Verse 8 says that Satan will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So, the saints are going to be surrounded, but first, who is who is going to be deceived? It says there, came out to deceive the nations. That is the, the Greek term for ethnos, or the uh, term for nations is ethnos, 
Again, the, we have a definite article indicating all of them, all of the nations are going to be uh, deceived, or at least people from all of the nations are going to be deceived. Ethnos, you might notice uh, we get an English term, ethnicity. Uh, It's a term that's used to describe just people in general. Uh, So people from every nation are going to be a part of this who are going to be deceived. And notice that it comes, that they come from the four corners of the earth. Now, this is not teaching that the earth is flat, that it has four corners. This is poetic language. People, they do go to this verse to prove that the Bible teaches that that the earth is flat. Absolutely ridiculous. You know, we should know by this time that the scriptures, uh, the book of Revelation in particular, uses poetic language. It uses uh, figures of speech and these kinds of things. And that doesn't mean that it's, uh, that, that, uh, that we have license to then not understand what the purpose is. Even though it's figurative language, it's still trying to get across a literal truth, four corners of the earth, very clearly, a poetic language, a figure of speech for everywhere is what is is being described there. And I also find it very interesting that people will go to places like this uh, and use a very, very literal interpretation of words like this, four corners of the earth, uh, and then at the same time, not use a literal interpretation when it talks about, oh, I don't know, a literal kingdom on the earth or salvation by faith alone. We like to add all kinds of other things in there that we have to do. We got to go to the right church, got to be in the right religion, got to pray a certain number of times, got to do this, got to do that. When the Bible says 200 times, believe that is how you have salvation. So we don't, yes, we are literalists or we go for the plain sense of the text. That's a better way to put it. The plain sense, the plain sense of four corners of the earth is a poetic description of everywhere. Because after all, if I were writing the Bible, it would be rather boring. It wouldn't be as nearly as interesting as John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit using figures of speech and and these uh, uh, visions that he is that he is having, simply a way of describing that uh, people from around the world are going to be deceived. And and now there's a few implications from this that we can take away. One, there are still nations on the earth. There's still people uh, living life during this period of time. And in fact, it's going to create these people who are deceived are going to create a, 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 an army that's unlike any army that has ever been gathered together before. It's going to be, the people are going to be like the sands of the seashore, it says there at the end of verse eight. So there's going to be a lot of people on the earth during this period of time. So uh, life is going to go on. I don't know how much different it's going to be than uh, what life is like today. People are going to have things to do. They're going to be living life. 
during that period of time. So we too are not just going to be like angels on a cloud strumming a harp. We're going to have things to be doing as well. And so next we come to this phrase in the middle of the verse, Gog and Magog. And so now I know you're all good Bible scholars out there, and that immediately makes our ears perk up. Oh, Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Is that what is being described here? Is that what this means? Uh, And I don't want this to be, I'm sure not everybody is intimately familiar with Ezekiel 38 and 39, and I don't want this to go off to be uh, an in-depth study of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and show you all of the and compare these two and come to some, uh, write a PhD dissertation on why Ezekiel 20 and verse 8 is not describing Ezekiel 38 and 39. There are some, a lot of good information out there. I'd recommend to you Tommy Ice's articles on Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, pre-trib website, uh, Dr. Andy Woods has written an entire book on Ezekiel 38 and 39, and I believe in the book he makes a comparison to Revelation 20 and kind of shows that there, that there are enough differences between what is being described here in Revelation 20 as what is being described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 to come to the conclusion that this is talking about two separate occasions if you will. Uh, The phrase here seems to be an add-on to this idea that they're coming from the four corners of the earth, and it's going to be a massive battle, a massive army that's going to come against the nation of Israel. Not unlike it was at least, I would say, at least 1,000 years before this event takes place, that is prophesied about by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And there are uh, several differences. Uh, The nations in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the primary nations mentioned there are Russia, Turkey, Iran, and uh, Ethiopia is mentioned. Some other countries from Africa are mentioned that are come against uh, the nation of Israel. Basically nations that are not immediately surrounding Israel, but out from Israel a little bit. And they're being led by the north. They're coming from the north. They're led by a man by the name of Gog from Magog, which is all of the scholars generally agree are all of the Stan countries, Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uh, Turkmenistan, all of those countries over there are going to come and evade, invade the nation of Israel. And if you'll remember, we've studied that before. And even in uh, our study of Revelation, we, uh, I presented the idea that, oh, it kind of fits that this is going to happen during the tribulation period. This invasion will happen. Uh, The Antichrist comes along promising peace to the world. Ezekiel 38, 
describes Israel being at peace, unwalled villages. And then suddenly war is going to come upon the earth. Uh, Second seal judgment, war comes. Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 very clearly lays out a, a giant warfare that ends in the nation of Israel believing in Christ as their Messiah and entering into the kingdom. Well, that's exactly what the entire tribulation period is, is a period of wrath being poured out, the nation of Israel trusting in Christ and him coming again and establishing the kingdom on the earth. This event happens at the end of the kingdom period, at the end of the thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to war. So what, what is the last war that took place before the kingdom comes to the earth? I would make the case that it's what we read about in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the war that we know as the Gog and Magog war. The period during the thousand years is not, uh, is a time of no war. They're beating their spears into plowshares. They've got, they've got too much uh, agriculture work to do to worry about killing one another. The peace reigns throughout the earth for a thousand years, and then Satan will be released, deceive the nations, gather an army to invade Israel, not much unlike what happened in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So the most likely answer as to why he's referring to, he refers to Gog and Magog here is a euphemism similar to how we would say somebody, oh, he met his Waterloo, speaking of Napoleon and his final battle where he was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, and that is similar to what is, I believe, John is doing here in referring to Gog and Magog in this thousand-year period. At the end of this thousand-year period, when Satan brings an army to invade Israel, the camp of the saints, uh, it says there, they came together for the war, The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So here's some more uh, differences. The specific nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, as opposed to all of the nations. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, you'll find that the enemies of God die on the mountains of Israel. Here they're said to die on the broad plain. Uh, Both places do mention fire from heaven. There is an exact uh, phrase, in fact, fire and brimstone. You think that would appear in the Bible a lot of times? Well, it doesn't. It actually only, that phrase, specific phrase, only happens a few times in the Bible One of them is Ezekiel 38, and another of them is here in Revelation 20. So there is some evidence connecting the two. However, in Ezekiel 38, it not only speaks of fire from heaven, it speaks of the enemy combatants killing one another. It speaks of uh, 
people turning on each other. It speaks of pestilence. It speaks of blood uh, falling from the sky, all kinds of things that are happening during that period of time uh, as opposed to simply uh, fire from heaven as is mentioned here. But the number one difference is Ezekiel 38 and 39 results in the nation of Israel believing uh, Israel must believe for Jesus to come again to the earth. That happens at the beginning of the thousand years, not at the end of the thousand years. That would make no sense. <laughs> if the nation doesn't believe until the thousand years are completed, what's the point of the thousand years? They believe before Christ comes again, establishes the thousand years, Satan is released at the end of the thousand years, gathers an army, and God defeats him. God does it all. God does all of the work in uh, defeating Satan finally and fully, and we will leave it right there for next time as we'll get to the suitable conclusion to the problem of sin in our lives. But the takeaway for today is that humanity is sinful, even under perfect circumstances with Satan uh, being eliminated from the scene, taken out of the picture. People don't have that excuse. So oh, the devil made me do it. No, we are sinful in and of our in and of ourselves without Satan's help. We we still uh, go astray. Therefore, a demonstration of several things that we'll get into next time, but primarily we all need Christ. We need to trust in him for our salvation because without him, we are hopeless. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have through faith in Christ. I thank you that you do not require for us to uh, carry out a, a set of steps to be made right with you. Instead, you just want us to believe in you, understand who you are, understand who we are as sinful people, and to trust in you. And your word promises us that at the moment that we trust in you, we move from death into life, and it's eternal life. And we can know with 100% assurity that we have life because it is based on just trust in you and what you have done for us. I thank you for this passage of Revelation that so clearly shows our desperate situation as humans and that in this book of Revelation, you are so clearly uh, set up as the answer to our problems. I thank you for making it so plain to us, so clear to us, and I thank you for making salvation so easy for us to do, to uh, simply trust in what you have done for us. We look forward to you coming again for us in the future. But in the meantime, I just pray that your Holy Spirit is with us, guiding us in our walk with you and helping us to be faithful to you in these times in which we are living. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.